You bet it is, and we're uh, so good to have you along with us. It's uh, John Scholes here at a little after 1 o'clock. We are ready to go. We hope you are as well. And uh, we're going to talk about disability law. My man is here, James Fireman. He is the guy with all the information. So, uh, James, we always start off with a bit of a uh, week that was. Get us warmed up. Get us stretched out, buddy, because we're both getting old. But uh, what do you got for us this afternoon? Well, I speak for myself. What do you got for us? I was going to say, some of us a little bit older than others, but you know, uh-huh. who's counting? Uh, one thing I would like to talk about off the top is a subject that at this point, I would think just about everybody listening and most of those who aren't would be familiar with. And that is the healthcare system and the mm. issues people are having getting care. Primary care is a huge issue. Finding a family doctor is extremely difficult. So is finding mental health experts as well. Finding a psychiatrist, often a referral will take six months, a year, sometimes as much as two. And the problems get worse the further you are from an urban center, generally speaking. So this is a particular concern, of course, for anybody who is not just disabled, but especially somebody who is disabled and trying to get disability insurance, because disability insurance requires that you are getting reasonable treatment. So what happens in a scenario where you are disabled and there is recommended treatment and either you can't get in to see your family doctor or maybe you don't even have one? Or your family doctor says, okay, well, you need to see a specialist for this. I'm going to refer you to the psychiatrist or to an ENT or whomever. And that appointment, that assessment is six months, a year away. What happens there? Well, oftentimes insurance companies will try to use that as a means to suggest that you are not getting all the reasonable treatment necessary. But usually I find insurers will recognize if that is the only thing that hasn't been done, that you are taking reasonable steps. In other words, if there are five things that are recommended and one of those happens to be treatment from the specialist and you have the referral, but you're just waiting to get it, more often than not, I find insurance companies are actually reasonable about that, will accept that you are waiting for the referral. Not always, though. And when they're not, if they were to, in any in any event, either uh, deny your claim or discontinue benefits on that basis, that is certainly something that you would be able to successfully challenge them by bringing a lawsuit. Would that have the same effect if you appealed it? Almost certainly not. Mm -hmm. Uh, But bringing a lawsuit and knowing that if they're not reasonable, there's going to be a judge at the end of the day brings insurance companies to the table pretty quickly when they are acting unreasonably, such as in that situation. So what is really important in all in all situations, but particularly when you're dealing with a situation where there is a particular treatment that you're having difficulty getting access to. What's really important is that you take all reasonable steps to put yourself in the best position possible. So that may be just following up and making sure that you have or that the doctor who you've been referred to has the referral and that there is something scheduled. And this may require you to follow up a few times. But if you're able to give that information to the insurance company, not just that you have this referral that's out there, but that you've made contact and you have at least some information about when the appointment's going to be or even when you're going to know when the appointment's going to be. Any information is better, but oftentimes there will be other recommended treatment 
in addition to any referrals that you may be having difficulty to a difficulty getting. And that's where it's really critical that you show the insurance company that you are taking all reasonable steps. And so even if you can't get in to see the the specialist that your doctor thinks is necessary, it's critical that you follow a, follow through on all of the other treatment recommendations, whether it's medication, whether it's seeing any particular therapist, whether it's a physiotherapist or occupational therapist, whatever the recommendations are, you don't want to give the insurance company any ability to say, okay, well, I accept the fact that you're having difficulty getting a referral to this doctor, but you still haven't done any of the other recommended treatments from your family doctor, so you need to get on that. And in a situation where you can't find a family doctor, then find the closest walk-in. It's not perfect. Far from it. But you need to be able to do something because the insurance company, I promise you, will not approve your claim if you don't have any medical support at all. Even if it's imperfect support, you need to get the ball rolling, not just from a legal perspective, but more importantly, from a medical perspective. So that's just really an important message that I want to get out there, that even though our healthcare system can be incredibly frustrating in terms of the delays, that doesn't necessarily mean that your disability claim, your claim for disability benefits needs to be prejudiced as a result. There are things that you can do to push the issue and to ensure that you're not giving the insurance company an easy way to deny your want to mention as well uh, by the way that uh, of course as James just um, was talking there we are we're live and we're ready if you want to uh, call into the show and ask some questions as well it's, uh, it's really simple 416-872-1010 again 416-872-1010 if you prefer the text route if you don't want to talk on air that's fine we can accommodate 71010 for the text and any other time help at disabilityrights.ca want to get into our uh, first email they're already uh, they're flying in here James everybody loves you Frank is first James, uh, I've been off work for over two years and fighting with the insurance company to get my short-term disability benefits approved. I've gone through several appeals and keep getting denied because they say I'm not sick enough that I can't work. I asked about long-term benefits and the insurance company just said because my short-term wasn't approved, I am not entitled to long-term. In another letter, they said I appealed or applied for benefits too late. I'm super confused on what to do here. I would appreciate your help to understand what my rights are and what I should do going forward. Wow. What do you think, James? Well, let's take a step back here because Mm -hmm. I want to make sure everyone understands the scenario that we're talking about. So Frank almost certainly is in a situation where the short-term disability insurer is the same as the long-term insurer. Another situation where this can happen is where the short-term disability is perhaps paid by the employer, that's not uncommon, but administered by an insurance company. And oftentimes the the insurance company that administers the short-term benefits is the very same insurance company that is also insuring the long-term. In any case, you have one entity, one insurance company that is administering both the short and long-term disability benefits. In that scenario, usually it is not an issue if you have been denied for short-term disability benefits that you need to separately apply for long-term disability benefits. And I say it's not an issue because there is a presumption that if the test is substantively the same, and it almost always is, then the insurance company is going to come to the same result. 
because there wouldn't be any basis to come to a different result for long-term benefits if you've already denied for short. Long-term requires a continuous disability throughout the short-term disability period. So there isn't really a conceivable way that the same entity can approve you for long-term and not for short. But even so, the advice that I always give to anybody in this situation is to apply for the long-term disability benefits anyhow. Mm-hmm. Even though it's the same entity, even though it makes no sense, what I never want is for the insurance company to have an easy out, like they are trying to do with Frank here and saying that it took you too long to apply. So I would recommend to anybody in that scenario who is, who has benefits for both short and long-term disability and who has been denied short-term disability benefits to go through the motions and apply for long-term. Obviously, Do not expect that you're going to get approved for long term. You almost certainly will not. In fact, I'd be shocked if you were. But at the very least, it means that they can't say that you're too late in applying down the road if you want to hire a lawyer and bring a lawsuit for their failure to approve of the benefits. So that is a really good step. Now, in this particular situation, dealing with Frank as he is, as he has already gone through this and they've told him that he's too late. The reality is in this kind of scenario, one, because the insurance company told him that he didn't have to apply, if he can substantiate that in any way, if that's anywhere in the notes, or even more so if they sent an email confirming that, then certainly the insurance company would not be able to hold to that position. But even if there is nothing to substantiate Frank saying that the insurance company told him this, even if they never told him that, The reality is, in most situations, if there's any reasonable basis for you to apply late, as long as there is no prejudice to the insurance company, a court would find that you're entitled to what's called relief from forfeiture. Forfeiture, yeah. Relief from forfeiture, which essentially just allows you to apply late as long as it's not going to prejudice anyone. In this case, I can't really see any scenario where an insurance company would be able to say that they were prejudiced because they have all the information already. There's no way they could argue. I mean, they are the same entity that is adjudicating for the short-term disability benefits. So it's not as though the late application puts them in a difficult position to assess his claim. They already have all the information that they could ever need to rely on it. So whatever this scenario, there is almost certainly no basis for the insurance company to reject the LTD application simply because it was too late where they've already rejected the short term. But in this case, I would still say, let's bring a lawsuit. Let's file a lawsuit for both the short and long-term disability benefits. That they're saying that you applied too late doesn't worry me at all. It's not It's not something that I think would be an issue at all. So that's where it's at, Frank, and I think that should help you. Frank, reach out for that phone call afterwards. Thanks for the email, pal. Always, always appreciate that. one 821 5900 Anna, we see you hanging on the phone. Stay there just a moment longer. We're going to get to you after a break, so stand by. And for you as well, plenty of time to do like Anna. Get in line, get on air, talk to us, ask your questions. This is your opportunity. 416-872-1010. And we continue. Lots more of the Disability Law Show is coming right up. Hang in there. 
And welcome back to it at 120. You bet you're back with us here. The Disability Law Show. James Fireman is who you want to reach out to now during the show and going forward when we're not on air here. And how do you do that? 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca or pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. You can check out that website. But here and now, always call the station. Your best bet. Quickest one, too, right? 416-872-1010. In that regard, Anna, thank you so much for uh, just hanging through the break. You're a doll. How are you today? And uh, Uh, What can we help you with? I was listening to the program, and I'm in the exact same scenario as James has been speaking about. So I've gone on disability. Uh, My last day of work was June 30th. And since then, and the disability was related to employer issues. So I've been off without pay since June 30th. And I submitted clinical notes to my to my insurance company, doctors, therapists, um, now on new medicine, and for the past the entire summer, actually, I've not once been paid and been denied twice, so I'm on my third appeal with the insurance company. All right, so there's a couple things that I'll get into here. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the first is you mentioned that, you're, that part of the issue is it has to do with your employer. And sorry, and I think it's possible you might have your radio on in the background. It might be helpful. If you're slower no, I don't have the radio on in the background. How about now? Okay. Well, it, it sounds better now. I'm not sure, but okay. that's okay. So we'll talk about these employer issues that you, you've mentioned. And I don't need you to go into any detail, but mm-hmm. what often happens when someone applies for disability benefits and the trigger for the disability is something to do with the work environment. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. we'll call it a, a toxic work environment. I don't know if mm-hmm. that's if that sounds right to you or not. Correct. Uh, Correct. So, when we see that, oftentimes insurers will say, okay, well, it's not really a disability. This is a toxic work environment. And if we take Anna out of the work environment and put her in another in another job, then she's mm-hmm. okay. This isn't toxic work environment insurance. It's disability insurance. And there's mm-hmm. truth to that. That is, in fact, correct. If the only issue that you have right now is that there's a toxic work environment that you can't go back to, but you would be able to go back and do your occupation in theory for some other employer that offered the same job at the same money, but you just can't go back to your environment because of the relationship issues or what have you, that wouldn't be a disability. That would not be, from a legal perspective, a disability under the policy. But that's not the end of the analysis, Anna. You also have to look at what where you're at right now, because the reality is it does not matter what has triggered your disability, whether it's a toxic work environment or a traumatic incident at home, or it's just a lifetime of, of stress and anxiety that we all go through, whatever it is, whatever has triggered your disability, if it is now generalized to the point where you would not be able to do your occupation for your employer or any employer, if you are simply not able to go back to work right now, then you are disabled. Doesn't matter if it started because of a toxic work environment. You cannot return to your occupation, not your job, but your occupation for any employer. Then you are disabled under the policy. I don't know which applies to you. If it is the latter, then you should be able to successfully challenge the denial. But 
The second issue that we need to talk about, and this may be the more important one, is that the way that you are challenging the denial is unfortunately very unlikely to be successful. You're appealing. And I understand why. I understand why people, when they get denied, they, the first instinct is to appeal, because that is what you see in the letter. You get sent this letter when you're denied, and it tells you that they've denied your application, and then mm-hmm. sometimes it'll give you a detailed explanation why. Sometimes it's not detailed, it's very vague, whatever it is. And mm-hmm. then right after that, they say, here's what you do to appeal. And that is very tempting, because first they deliver this devastating news, but then they give you this small ray of light, and you grab onto that. You say, okay, well, it's not over yet. I can still do this. I can still do mm-hmm. the appeal. And a lot of people do that because it's right in front of them in that letter. But here's the reality of the appeal. If you were to look in your policy, and you can get a copy of that. If you look in your policy, what you won't find anywhere in that policy is anything having to do with an appeal. It is not part of the policy document. It is not something that is required in any particular way as a matter of contract between you and your insurance company. The appeal is there because your insurance company knows that if they deny your claim and don't provide you with some access to say, hey, can you reconsider this? Then you're going to go and hire a lawyer. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you hire a lawyer, you bring a lawsuit, they no longer control the situation. And right now, that's what they do. They're controlling the entire process. They control the application process. They control the adjudication process. And if you choose to go that route, they also control the appeal process. You're not appealing to some independent adjudicator. There's no one being brought in on this in order to take a fresh look at this, an independent fresh look uh, who's completely neutral. Your best case scenario is that the appeal goes to some uh, appeal committee that hasn't looked at this before, but usually that doesn't happen, particularly with the first or second appeal. Usually what happens is the appeal either goes to the same claims handler that denied your claim in the first in the first place, or sometimes to their direct supervisor who approved of the denial. So Mm -hmm. you're not getting fresh eyes on this. What you're doing is you're asking the very same people who have already shown that they are not going to listen to reason, that they are not going to accept what is right in front of them from your treating doctors who have a very clear bias against approving. I mean, that's how insurance companies make money. They make money by denying claims. That's Mm -hmm. obvious. And that's what they're in business to do. Don't make any mistake about that. As soon as they have found a justification for denying your claim, they are going to run with it. And the only way you're going to change their mind without forcing them to be reasonable by bringing a lawsuit is if you fundamentally change the information that they have. If you are appealing with more or less the same information, it's not going to change their view. Even if your doctors are saying, I can't believe that you're denying Anna here. She is really disabled. You really have to take a better look. I'm you know, surprised and disgusted, whatever it is. I've seen mm-hmm. these very emphatic letters, very well-intentioned, emphatic letters mm-hmm. from, from doctors, from therapists, from psychiatrists who truly cannot understand the thought process behind the denial, trying mm-hmm. to support their patient in the, in the disability claims process. And that almost never goes anywhere at all because the information is so fundamentally the same and the insurance company has already decided that this isn't going to be sufficient to force them to pay you the benefits. 
The only way to get them to be reasonable is to take control of the process away from them. It's the only way you're going to get to do it in. And the only way to do that is by bringing a lawsuit. As soon as you do that, they no longer control what happens if they're unreasonable. If they choose to continue to be unreasonable once you bring a lawsuit, at the end of the day, they would wind up in court in front of a judge. And a judge would not only force them to pay the benefits that they should have been paying, assuming that you are indeed disabled, but Mm -hmm. a judge would look at their process and say, you had all this information very early on from the treating doctors telling you that Anna was disabled. You didn't have her assessed. You just assumed that you knew better than the treating doctors. That was bad faith. That was not a fair process. And that is what's required. They are required to act in good faith, to have basic fundamental fairness in the process. Mm -hmm. And when they fail to do that, the punishment for that is called punitive damages. It means that not only do they have to pay the benefits that they would have had to pay all along, but they have to pay these damages over and above. So they don't want that. They don't want to wind up in front of a judge in court. And that's why when you bring a lawsuit, what happens almost immediately is they say, "Okay, let's find a date to discuss settlement on this. And invariably, that's what happens in these cases resolve. Okay. So everything that you did say is everything that my physicians and doctors have discussed with me and as to the whys, and also to the letters that you had mentioned as to the appeals. So, of course, you know, that's the next step, and that's what we normally do. And I've never been in this situation before. This is the very first time in the last ever. Well, I'll tell you what, Anna, we're coming up on a break right now. Uh, I'm going to take down your number and I'm going to get in contact with you after the show and we'll have a free consultation off air. Thank you, Anna. Appreciate that. we got to let you go and you have time to grab that phone just like Anna now. 416-872-1010. We continue with the Disability Law Show. Hang in there. Welcome back to the Disability Law Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. You bet you we're back. It is 135. Still plenty of time for you to reach out and contact us. You can also contact James after the show. Always encouraged to do so. He's got a great team with him, ready to help with a simple phone call. That's where it may start. 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. But here and now, just like Anna did, get some information. Have a chat here live with us on air. A little bit of clarity anyway, right? 416-872-1010. All right, James, working our way down, and we are at Beth as far as emails concerns. This guy's running to you as I was watching the TV show yesterday. Thank you, Beth, regarding LTD, what it is due to mental distress. My LTD just started this month, and the insurance advisor contacted me saying I will be cut off right after some sessions with the occupational therapist they got me in order to get me back to work in eight weeks, Tops. During the first session with the OT last week, she made an assessment to see my level of anxiety and depression, and she said I scored pretty high. The same assessment was done with my family doctor and got the same results. The scores were high. I do feel more anxiety as the days go by, and I'm not sure if they have the right to force me back to work on any given date. Also, my husband wants to decrease my stress level of depression and anxiety, and he wants to take me to fly to another country for a week, you know, change my scenery, see if that helps. I'm not sure if I can or even if I'm allowed to do so as the insurance wants to cut me off, and this can be a reason for them to do it. Uh, Please, could you advise me on this situation entirely? I greatly appreciate your advice. Thank you, says Beth. What do you think, James? I think there is a lot going on in that email. 
Yeah, man. So let's just get right into it. So Beth, first and foremost, nobody can force you to do anything. They cannot force you to go back to work. All they can do is say they're not going to pay your benefits. Whether you go back to work at that time or not is up to you. No one's going to come to your house and put a gun to your head and say, Beth, go back to work now, obviously. But there is a financial reality that people are faced with. And if you simply need to have either your disability benefits or an income, I get it. It's an imperfect scenario. And so what do we do in that scenario where the insurer is being unreasonable? Well, the first thing that really sticks out when I listen to you read Beth's email is that the insurance adjuster, the claims handler, seems to have come to a conclusion about the impact of those eight OT sessions and how they were going to improve Beth's condition before she had them. In other words, you know, it, it was obviously necessary for her to have that occupational therapy in order to get her ready to return to work. But the claims handler can't say before they've started that they're mm-hmm. going to be effective, that Beth's condition is going to improve to the point where she is, in fact, ready to return to work once they're finished. And obviously, after the first session, very clearly, the results of the testing showed that she is not. If she is having severe anxiety and depression that is being noted both by her own doctor as well as by the OT that was hired by the insurance company, then I don't believe there's any scenario where the claims handler can say with any degree of certainty that after the eight sessions, she's going to be ready to return to work. It's possible that she will be. That's a possibility. We don't know what's going to happen over the next seven sessions and what's going to happen with the rest of her treatment. But certainly looking at it prospectively before the first session and after the first session as well, it doesn't seem as though the insurer is in any position to say that she will be ready as of the end of this particular set of occupational therapy treatments. So that is something that would bother me significantly. Uh, What I would certainly want to do is to get that in writing, get their position in writing, and then provide that to your own doctor, to your own family physician. If you have a specialist, provide it to your specialist as well. In this case, I would assume either a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist and have them comment on whether or not you are in a position to be able to return to work or whether the remaining occupational therapy is likely to have enough of an impact on your functional ability that at the end of it, you would be in a position to return to work. Get them to provide an opinion. Obviously, get that opinion in writing and submit that to the insurer so that if they maintain that position, they continue to say that you have to go back to work at the end of this this OT treatment, that you will be in a position to challenge them, whether it is by uh, by bringing a lawsuit or at least having them have that information in front of them and take a good hard look at whether or not they want to maintain that. And sometimes that will be effective. Sometimes if you have treating doctors saying, no, just going through these OT sessions is certainly not going to make my patient uh, functionally capable of returning to work. And if you try to force her to do that, the additional stress and anxiety is actually going to cause her to regress. If they have that opinion in front of them, some claims handlers will actually reconsider their position. 
And even if they don't, you're at worst in a better situation if you were to bring a lawsuit down the road. So that is the first thing that I would suggest to Beth is make sure that you get it in writing and then have your own doctors respond to that in writing and provide that to the insurance adjuster. Now, there is another question that Beth is asking, and that's about travel. Tra- uh, that's about travel. That's right. No. And so, the first thing you need to do is take a look at the policy. Generally, when we're talking about long-term disability, we're talking about it as though all policies are the same. And for the most part, when you're talking about the most fundamental aspect of the policies, the definition of disabled and how they how the policies function in terms of the change of definition and those things in substance almost all of the disability policies especially the group policies are the same but the travel restriction is one area where we do see some amount of variance so you need to go and take a look at your policy and see what is written in there in terms of what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to typically speaking there is going to be some leeway where you wouldn't need approval beforehand that you would just be able to go. Sometimes it's two weeks, sometimes it's three months, sometimes it's six months, whatever it is in your policy, you have the right to go and you know be out of the country for that period of time. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you should do it. Whether or not you should go, first of all, you want to run that by your own treating doctors and make sure that they agree that it's a good idea for you to be traveling. Very often, especially when we're talking about people who are struggling with mental health issues, it is not at all uncommon for me to see their treating doctors or therapists say, this would be great for you just to get out of the, you know, where, wherever you're living, get out of your situation, just be in a new environment, perhaps with some nice weather and some distractions and just relax as best you can for whatever period of time. So it shouldn't be hard in most scenarios to get that support from mm-hmm. your treating doctors or therapists. Once you have that, though, there's still a question of whether or not this is something that is going to interfere with the disability insurance process. And that's what Beth is really talking about because it seems quite apparent that her disability insurer is set on forcing her back to work. And I just use, I, I just use the expression forcing. Uh, in cutting off her benefits if she's not back to work uh, at the end of these OT sessions. And so there is some vulnerability there. And Beth, you're right to ask about that. And my advice would be that while you are in the midst of these sessions, you are probably better served to not take the vacation until they're done. Even though they may well just wind up cutting you off at the end, you don't want to give them that excuse. Now, yes, if your policy says that you're entitled to travel, you can go and do that. But the insurer can still say that this is necessary treatment and you're not getting the necessary treatment because you decided to go away at an inopportune time. And so it's not the fact that you've traveled in and of itself that would allow them to cut off your benefits, but that in traveling, you are not able to get this specific treatment. The other treatment that you're getting, you would want to make sure that you have something set up so that you could continue. If you're getting psychotherapy, for example, oftentimes you would be able to set up a virtual therapy session so that you you could continue that. But if you are not continuing with the OT sessions while you're away, and generally speaking, you wouldn't be able to, then you're right, Beth, that would be giving them some fodder to try and cut off your claims. So I wouldn't recommend doing it until the the eight sessions are done. 
Appreciate it. Beth, reach out for more info to uh, James, one 821 5900 And for you as well, reach out through email. We'll try to get to yours either today or on a future show. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And the phone call here and now to reach us, 416-872-1010. Lots more on the way on the Disability Law Show. Coming right back. Welcome back indeed. 150 Saturday afternoon. James Fireman, Sam Fury, Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Always encouraged to reach out to James with your disability law woes. You're having issues with that insurance company or just need some information. You can uh, make the call. 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. But here and now, we love having your phone calls on air. Ask your questions. 416-872-1010. But before we move on to our uh, next caller, James, I want to get Corey's email happening here. It says, guys, I've been on LTD since May 2022. The reason I uh, stopped working is chronic pain with my neck and shoulders. I had left shoulder replacement surgery in late November 2022. When it came time for physio on my shoulder, I chose the closest provider to my home and one that was approved by the LTD insurer. I'm now on my fourth, counted fourth case manager. She requested I apply for CPP disability, which I did a few months ago. Now they're asking for a copy of an MRI report that my doctor referred me for that was done last year. The MRI covered both shoulders and my neck. They're also telling me they want me to change to another physio they work with i am and have always only followed what my doctor has requested on me throughout this process he's also referred me for radio a, a different bit of testing which i can't pronounce with no app uh, appointment time frame as of yet here's my questions number one should i be forwarding the mri reports to them number two can they make me change to another physio that would be inconvenient for me james what do you think brother well, I think Corey has been very good about being compliant with what uh, I'm not sure if Corey is a man or a woman, but uh, with their insurer's requests uh, to an extent that a lot of people aren't. But it goes to show you that there is often not necessarily a limit about what an insurer will ask of you or will impose on you during the process. So be aware of that. But in terms of providing the MRI reports, absolutely. There's no reason not to. And more than likely, given the extent of the shoulder issues that you've gone through and the replacement surgery, uh, those MRI reports are just going to provide further support. So I would have no hesitation about providing them with the MRI reports. But I think the bigger issue here is the request for Corey to change therapists, to change physiotherapists. And at the beginning of the email, Corey mentioned that when they started the physiotherapy, the first step was getting approval for the therapist. And apparently the uh, insurer approved the therapist that has been giving Corey treatment since this all started. And if that's the case, there really doesn't seem any basis for the insurer to now turn around and say, oh, well, uh, you have to now go to see this physiotherapist. I suppose it's possible that there is a particular physiotherapy modality that Corey might need that isn't available at the particular therapist that they're they're going to right now, but I doubt it. And if that is the case, if it's ju- if it's just that the insurer wants to use a therapist that is more friendly for them, well, sorry, they don't get to do that, especially if it's going to inconvenience you. So what I would do is politely say, no, I'd like to continue with the therapist that I'm using and see what the response is. If the response is, no, you have to, then make sure that there is something in writing saying that you have to and the reason why they're insisting that you change. 
when they've already approved of the therapist that you've been seeing. So that's my advice is, yes, I would provide them with the reports, but I would certainly push back against the request that you change physiotherapists. Oh, yeah, I'm standing by, buddy. I'm right here. Got a little bit of a connection issue there. Uh, 416-872-1010 is the number you want to use any time to reach out and uh, and ask your questions. And uh, let's do that. Let's get to, to Mitchell. Hi, Mitchell. Thanks for hanging on there a moment. How are you? Hey, thanks, man. Good. Um, What's up? It's kind of a convoluted thing. I work for a trucking company. I've been there for 11 years now. And like, we're not a trucking company that has our own freight. We work for other companies. And I shattered my leg two years ago. I had a couple of surgeries. I now have a leg full of steel, screws, pins, wires, all this sort of deal. So I was off for 11 and a half months. I was in a cast for seven and a half months. Then I was four months learning how to walk again. Then I went back to work. And like the like while I was off work, I did safety programs and everything on my computer at home for the company. But now that I'm back to work, I'm limited in what I can do because we do flatbed work. So I don't just open doors and close doors and back into docks. I actually have to chain down and strap down loads. But one company that we do a lot of work with is for the lack of a better term, bitching at my company saying, well, if he can't do this and he can't do that, don't send him in here. And that means I can't work. But I'm, I'm literally on, I'm literally on, what do you call, like permanent light duties because I walk with a cane. I can't lift any weights, things like that there. So like, what what are my options if this company is saying that to my company, don't send him in here? Gotcha. Well, so I, I, I can't answer what your options are from an employment standpoint. I, I'm not an employment lawyer myself, although, of course, Sifir Tamarkin has many really excellent employment lawyers, and I believe our show runs on this very Tomorrow, station. yeah, one o'clock. Tomorrow. Um, so for that part of your question, certainly I would recommend calling in and getting a clear answer on the employment side of it. Uh, but, Mitchell, do you have disability insurance? Um, well, yeah, but, I mean, it's limited. It's the company policy, so, I mean, it's not mm. great. I mean, I was on workers' comp, and workers' comp was actually, like, they surprised me. There was three or four times I said, like, I'm willing to go back to work, and they went, no. Like, the injury the injury to your leg was too bad. You are not going back to work. And I was well, like, so usually th- these guys try to throw you off the bus and get you back to work, and they were going, no. So, Mitchell, if your your employer is providing you with permanent modified duties, are they are they saying that they can't continue to do that? Oh no, they're being really good. Like the company I work for is fantastic. Like they're they're going out of their way to do. Well, so I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure what the issue is that we, we can help you with. I mean, it sounds as though from an employment perspective, your employer is doing what they should do. They're yeah. providing you with the the necessary accommodations. And those accommodations are such that you're able to do what's being asked of you. So even yeah. if you do, even if you did have a really great disability policy, which I gather from your previous answer, you might not. But even if there was one there, you probably wouldn't qualify because the the accommodations being provided to you are sufficient that you're able to return to work. So I don't yeah. really know what we can help with here because what we do on this show is we deal with disability insurance issues. So that's not something that seems to be the core of your question. Mm-hmm. So my, my my suggestion to you then, Mitchell, is 
tomorrow during the employment law show, you give you give us a call and see what answers you get in terms of how to deal with the the contractors that you're dealing with that that are working with your company that are refusing to allow you to come in. Yeah, it's an interesting call that uh, Mitchell had because it's not his employer; it's one of the clients that they deal with. So he's going to have to kind of navigate that sucker a little, uh, a little differently. But uh, yeah, good call, Colin, for sure uh, tomorrow. And uh, join us at one o'clock for that show. We're out of time, brother. And uh, well done, James. You want to reach out to James now with uh, your disability matter? You can. Here is the uh, here's the contact information. One more time: one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at disabilityrights.ca through the email and pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca haven't been there before check it out it's free and it's anonymous and again join us as james mentioned tomorrow at one o'clock right here for the employment law show and until next time on this show enjoy the rest of your weekend and we'll catch you next time